wake up. It's the Sleep Unplugged podcast, episode 66, Sleep and Longevity. You and I are going to live forever. Welcome, everyone, to the podcast. My name is Chris Winter. I'm a neurologist and sleep specialist, and most importantly, your host for what hopefully is an exciting episode of the Sleep Unplugged podcast. I've been wanting to do an episode on longevity forever, no pun intended, and it seems like this is the week to do it. So very excited that you're here. If you're new to the podcast, if you're a veteran, welcome back. Great to see you again. Wanted to address some comments uh, from last week's podcast. The first was from Gary. Gary said, did you know that Van Morrison was so upset with astral, I'm sorry, Tupelo Honey, that it's the reason why it's not on Spotify? And I was like, that's not true. So I looked up Spotify and sure enough, that is the one album of Van Morrison's is not on there. So appreciate that comment. Uh, really liked it. Uh, got a lot of really interesting feedback uh, from Todd, from Susan, from uh, uh, God. Really, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher your name, so I'm not even gonna say. I can't even begin to pronounce it. It starts with a Q. And the Sleep Unplugged podcast is thinking about you. These were all three comments uh, about our episode on 63 about sleep and anxiety and just how helpful that was and, and how meaningful the, the topic was that we even covered it. And uh, also got a really nice, um, really nice uh, comment from Janice about REM behavior disorder. She and her husband or partner are going through the diagnosis of REM behavior disorder and what most look, what looks most like a uh, diagnosis of some sort of neurocognitive decline. And she said that, you know, her husband had been acting out dreams for 10 years and just really appreciated the second part of our podcast talking about the way, you know, physicians should talk about it. She said, I don't know if my physician was ignorant of the fact that this meant that perhaps there was a you know a decline coming or that he was withholding it from us and she said either way that's that's really bad and she wished that her doctor had, had had been more forthright with both of them because it really would have made a meaningful change in how they approached that decade and um i appreciate that you know it, it's a, it's a it's a it's a tough situation to be in um but i'm glad that episode was was positive for you so the topic of this week's uh, podcast or the title, uh, You and I Are Gonna Live Forever, that is from the Oasis song Live Forever off of their debut album, uh, Definitely Maybe. It was at the time the biggest selling, the fastest selling British album in history, uh, sold 8.5 million copies worldwide. It, uh, Live Forever is actually the third single off the album. It was supersonic and... Uh, shaker maker which were great songs huge songs that they would play at the concert but it was really live forever that was the the massive the massive single and that was released like i said in 94 that was uh i think my final year in college i remember that album coming out and being like oh my god this is this album is great and what was so great about oasis and definitely maybe and then their follow-up album was a huge hit you know champagne supernova and don't look back in anger is that it really revitalized brit pop and brit pop was sort of the answer to the grunge movement angry dark bleak nirvana and now you've got this song 
you and I are going to live forever, which was said to have been written by uh, written by Noel Gallagher. So the brothers Noel and Liam Gallagher were the the two front people of Oasis, and Noel wrote most of the songs. Liam sang them, and it was about their mother Peggy. And it's it's optimistic. You and I are going to live forever. You know, um, I'm going to fly. I mean, all kinds of positive lyrical kinds of things. Not that all of their songs are that way, but this one certainly was. And so. You know, people were kind of wanting something lighter, and that's sort of the pendulum pendulum of music we swing back and forth. And it was said that Noel actually wrote this song. He was working in like in a storeroom or a warehouse where they, you know, building supply place or something, and they dropped he dropped a pipe on his foot and really injured his foot. So they gave him a job where he was just kind of sitting around at a desk. And that's when he actually wrote a lot of the songs, I think, including this one. And there's a great version of this song that you can find on YouTube live during the Taylor Hawkins, the drummer for uh, Foo Fighters who passed away during his tribute concert. Um, it's an outstanding uh, rendition. So we salute Oasis and the most dysfunctional brothers in pop music history. Uh, really appreciate you. I'm a huge fan. So let's talk about sleep and longevity. This is a huge topic that people like to talk about. It's huge in the media. It's huge on TikTok, social influencers, you know, drink this, eat this, wear this, subscribe to this, practice this, and you live forever. And we certainly are obsessed with longevity. We're certainly obsessed with, you know, better health and fitness and, and turning back aging and fountains of youth and all that great stuff. And I think there's a place for sleep at that table for sure. And there's plenty of evidence that would show that if we look at sleep in a bunch of through a bunch of bunch of different lenses, that can sort of give us a little view in terms of ways we can actually improve our health, well-being, and longevity. And I'll say from the outset, longevity is longevity. I, I think that it's a better thing to talk about a, a, an increased quality of life versus just more days. And I remember, I don't remember the name of the drug. There was an ALS drug that came out many, many years ago. that was very controversial because studies showed that it did prolong the lives of ALS patients. I believe, this is a guess, I can't remember. It was like three months, but it was statistically significant, meaning that it clearly separated from placebo in terms of how long patients with ALS lived. It was very expensive um, and it was very controversial because over time it sort of became we're paying this much money to prolong the suffering of our loved ones by three months it is sort of what the reputation of that drug sort of assumed. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. Um, so I, I think that when we think about longevity, we want to keep in the back of our mind, death is coming for us all, unfortunately. Um, and death may not be the worst thing to fear. There are things perhaps that are worse than dying, like being alive and suffering. So I, you know, I think that we always want to keep our eye on that prize of, yes, let's, let's, let's look at longevity and ways we can live longer, but hopefully better during that time as well too. So when I think about sleep, the things that I like to think about in terms of what within sleep can we manipulate that actually makes things a little bit better I think we need to look at sleep debt. Are, are we getting enough sleep? Just the number of hours that we get. And we've talked about, you know, getting too much, getting too little, 
there's that sweet spot in that little U or J curve where we want to be. And so if you're falling asleep listening to this podcast, my guess is strive for a little bit more. If you get in bed at night, it always takes you three hours to fall asleep. Maybe dial it back in terms of how much you're seeking and, and try to find that spot. Second thing we've talked about frequently on this podcast is circadian misalignment. And that can be shift work, that can be jet lag, that can be daylight saving time. We'll give a shout out to our buddy, Karen Johnson, and, and all the work that she and her peers are doing to try to get people to understand being on standard time, being more circadianly aligned with where we should be from our sleep and our light perspective can actually improve our health and our longevity, despite what your congressman is telling you that they're going to pass a law to make daylight saving time permanent. No, no, no. You want standard time to be permanent. Uh, and the third thing is sleep disruption. So you're getting enough sleep, the right amount. You're very good about scheduling it during a good sleep window. You go to bed at 10 o'clock and you're up at, you know, six o'clock and you get your eight hours every night or whatever. And the quality of that sleep you get is good. You don't have a cell phone in your room. There's no pager. There's no dog that barks every time a car drives by. Uh, you don't have sleep apnea. You don't have something that's disrupting the nature of your sleep. Um, so those are the three major categories you can think about when it comes to, well, what can I do in terms of my sleep specifically to make me live as long and healthy life as possible? I think those three are your answers right there. So I'll highlight some kind of interesting research um, in this podcast that I think might relay itself and, and relate itself to this concept. The first is there was a 2022 study out of UCLA in the uh, journal Reviews of Endocrinologic Metabolic Disorder, and the title of it was Sleep, Testosterone, and Cortisol Balance in Aging Men. And man, there's a topic I know something about because I'm an aging man. Um, and basically it says, look, for individuals who are not doing the things we talked about before, getting enough sleep, managing the quality of their sleep, managing the timing of their sleep, that will result in a lower testosterone level. We make testosterone at night and it will result in a higher cortisol level. And you know that. I, I always talk about sleep being the little keyhole, the little portal into your circadian rhythm. We can't see testosterone being released. We cannot see you know, the, 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 the hormones that are happening during a menstrual cycle, but we can see sleep. I can see you asleep on a city bus. I can see you awake doing your job. Cortisol, you can kind of see it. Pull an all-nighter. I, I went through it. Ooh, I just went through a rough stretch of travel, like two back-to-back -back 5 a.m. kind of flights. Uh, I don't like to do that to myself. I don't know why I do that to myself, but there was a compelling reason for it that I won't bore you with. But, you know, when you're burning it, you know, up at five and, and staying up too late because the meeting you went to, everybody wants to talk to you afterwards and the dinner goes a little bit too long, you know, whatever. Whatever your reason for not getting enough sleep, do you ever do you ever feel that cortisol surging in you? Like you feel kind of jittery. I always feel it kind of tingly in my face. Like I don't, I, I would never check my blood pressure during that time because I know it's high. <laughs> like I know, and you know that this is the reason why people have heart attacks and strokes. That autonomic, that cardiovascular dysregulation with inadequate sleep. So when we screw up sleep, we mess up our testosterone. We don't get enough of it. And we increase our cortisol level. And when you think about testosterone, it's our main anabolic you know, hormone. We think about cortisol, it's our main catabolic hormone. So imbalancing those, we are breaking down more than we are building. 
And this article said something very interesting. I'm going to read the quotation to you because I think it's really important. Fixing the testosterone cortisol balance by means of a novel dual hormone clamp. So what they're saying is we're going to use some sort of chemical method for changing hormone balance outside of sleep. We're going to artificially do it to a research subject. Okay, I'm going to keep reading. Mitigates the induction of insulin resistance by sleep restriction. So what that's saying is, okay, well, who cares if your cortisol is high and your testosterone is low? Well, a big thing is that is the the recipe for insulin resistance and diabetes and all the terrible health-related and longevity-related things that go along with screwing up insulin resistance and your management of of sugar, essentially. Um, Back to the quotation. And this provided the first proof of concept that the metabolic harm from sleep loss can be ameliorated by approaches that do not require sleeping more. A pause there because I thought by saying that lightning was going to strike me down for saying it. Because I'm going to tell you, I've spent a career answering this question. Hey, Chris, I'm only able to get three hours of sleep at night because I work two jobs. What are some things I can do to make you know me healthier and, and live longer? I don't know the answer to that question. It's like, you don't want to breathe air and you want to know what you could do. Like, hey, Chris, I'm trapped underwater with no scuba tank. What are some hacks I can employ to make sure that I don't drown? <laughs> Do not have the answer to that question. It doesn't exist, right? You're asking me, what can I do to reel back or change fundamental laws of nature and science? Hey, Chris, I want to throw this apple in the air and I want it to never come down. I, well, you know, I've talked to Newton. There's nothing we can help you with there. The apple's coming back down. Maybe you could throw it up and run away or look the other way and pretend like it didn't come down, but, it, but look, it's coming down. Gravity's going to pull it back. So consider what these authors are saying, that if we can change your testosterone and cortisol through means outside of sleep, a drug, some sort of protocol, we might be able to affect and reverse and make positive changes that are happening to you because you're not getting enough sleep. So I'm just going to be very clear with everybody listening. This does not exist right now. And if somebody on TikTok's telling you that it does, they're lying. But in the future, could we have a medication announcement that this is the first FDA approved drug that allows you to stay up late but might help with some of the consequences of that drug. And at first blush, you're thinking that drug should never see the light of day. Okay, there's an argument to be made there. And in fact, I think I could make it. But you could also make the argument, look, what are we doing about shift workers? They exist, they're out there. You, you may or may not know them, but I promise you there's plenty of them out there that are working unusual shifts, changing shifts, and they're harming their bodies and harming themselves. Or they're reducing their longevity because they can't get out from under the circadian misalignment, the sleep disruption, and frankly, the sleep debt that they're incurring. Shift workers, I think, on average, sleep six hours less per week than non-shift workers in the same job. It's all the same. So they get the triple whammy. And that's the reason why cancer is higher in these individuals, metabolic disorders, death, stroke, heart attack, you name it, obesity, mood problems, job dissatisfaction. So- 
I find that to be absolutely fascinating. So thinking about that in the future, that it's not a therapy that's here now, but maybe one day could be. Longevity, sleep. I don't think you can have a podcast talking about the two without exercise. And I'm not going to beat this up because we've talked about exercise in other episodes. Um, we talked about it in how do you get more deep sleep? Well, there it is, exercise. When I look at the research and you say, Chris, I can do one thing and I wanted to create more deep sleep in me, what would that be? It's exercise. A uh, study in 2021 from the, um, ex- uh, it was a biochemistry and pharmaceutical, uh, pharma- biochemistry, pharmacology. Um, and the, uh, the title was The Aging Brain, Sleep, the Circadian Clock, and Exercise. And basically their authors say, look, we're just here to emphasize that even moderate exercise in age-matched individuals quote, ameliorates, that's a, that's a big, ameliorate is a great word in the longevity community. You better be familiar with that word if you're going to the longevity and whatever conference in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, ameliorate several aging characteristics as far as sleep and circadian rhythms are concerned, independent of the species studied. So to all my non-human listeners, I got two dogs sitting behind me right now who are absolutely compelled by this because they'd like to live beyond the age of 20 if possible. I'd love for them to do that as long as the quality of their life is good. We're talking about exercise. I exercise my dogs every day, rain or shine. They walk in the morning before my clinic and we run at night every day. And believe me, they don't miss a day. They really, really like their exercise. So hopefully that'll help them live a long time. And when you think about exercise, there's lots of things that are going into that, right? It's not just the exercise effects on sleep or the exercise increase in deep sleep, but there's the metabolic consequences, which again, could be related to sleep as well too. There's weight, there's mood, there's increased lean muscle mass and strengthening bones and all kinds of great things. Being being outside if you exercise outside. So all kinds of fantastic things there with exercise. Next one is light. So this is a little bit of a stretch maybe, but in terms of ways we could think about sleep and longevity, there's a study in 2019, Aging Research Reviews, called Effects of Light on Aging and Longevity. And basically the thrust of the article is, look, we are in a very different light situation than we were 200 years ago. A lot more artificial light and a lot more light of novel source, like LED lighting, energy efficient lighting. And the authors of this paper, I think it was USC, where it was from, University of Southern California. I think the authors of this paper said, look, we need to think about the lighting that we're exposed to every day from the perspective of circadian disruption. So you work in a factory, there's no windows. How is that factory that you spend eight hours at every day being lit? What are the considerations there? And is that lighting itself contributing to problems that may make the span of your life shorter? There was also interesting dialogue about the types of lighting we're exposed to and how it relates to or induces oxidative stress. So if you're in the aging community, if you're in the longevity community, antioxidants, free radical scavengers. There's there's all kinds of talk about these things because what is aging? 
why does your skin look different at 50 than it does at 32 than it does when you're born? These are really, it's oxidative stress. It's being exposed to the sun. It's all these things contribute to aging. And so what, what signs of aging do we see? We see things like changes in our skin, texture, wrinkling, you know, sunspots, all that kind of, but it's happening in all of the cells of our body. And when you, when you talk to people who study aging, oxidative stress is huge. And so is the lighting that we're exposed to now negatively contributing to that? And so they had this whole paper sort of saying, look, one thing that we can change, lighting is under our control. Hey, instead of that bulb, use that bulb. Instead of when you're building a house, when you're building a school, when you're building a factory, when you're retrofitting these things for lighting, those changes do make a difference. And I think we're starting to find out more about that. You know, we've always concentrated more on performance. Hey, how does that lighting in your locker room affect the way you play the game when you're players leave the locker room and go out in the field or on the ice or on the court. But I think that it might relate or extend beyond just performance to greater topics like longevity. And generally speaking, there's a link between performance and longevity, right? You know, if you got a bunch of people together and said, I want you to do 20 push-ups and two pull-ups or just some, some, you know, whatever your criteria is and you separated out the two groups. Okay, here's the group that can do this, you know, the, the flexed arm hang and the pull-ups and the push-ups and the crunches you wanted, or here's the group that can run the mile under this. And here's the group that can't, or we'll stratify over this time, under this time, kind of even, can't even complete the mile. I can promise you longevity numbers in those different groups are different. And that ability to perform that physical task is predictive for sure. So I, you know, I think that pulling those things apart can be meaningful as well too. Um, digital technology. So as soon as I say your mobile phone, we're already talking about light, which we've just talked about. We're already talking about circadian disruption. And we're probably in a lot of people talk, talking about sleep disruption. So Study in Dialogues of Clinical Neuroscience, this is from 2020, Brain Health Consequences of Digital Technology Use. Uh, it talked about the potential harmful effects of excessive screen time and technology and the use of your phone causing, one, heightened attention deficit symptoms. And I see that like crazy. When I go, when I visit with students, I feel a pressure to be, incredibly engaging, incredibly funny. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge I like. So I'm going to sit up in front of a bunch of you high school students and college students, me, Chris Winner, you know, sleep doctor. <laughs> when you saw that, you know, flyer that your, your university, your high school is hosting the sleep doctor. My guess is you weren't thrilled. This is like, oh my God, it's Harry Styles coming. No, no, no. It's the middle-aged sleep doctor from Virginia coming to talk to you about sleep and, and you know, you're getting lectured, you know, whatever. So I take that as a challenge because, and you can see when you lecture a big group of people or a big group of students, you can see their faces. It's not hard. Are they looking at you? Are they kind of nodding? Are they following along? Or are they doing that little eyes at four o'clock because there's actually a phone in their lap and they're scrolling through their social media? Are they laughing at jokes? Are they interacting with things? So to me, that cell phone, the attention deficit disorder, absolutely. 
we, we're creating a culture where as you swipe and get your little news briefs and your little TikTok videos, they're short. They're intentionally short. And so we're getting more and more used to digesting that in that way. In fact, when I was at Wabash, I was talking to somebody there and they said, yeah, Tuesdays and Thursdays can be tough for college students these days, not just the students there, but any, because those Tuesday, Thursday lectures, remember those, they were long because you only met twice a week. So you had to get the same amount of instructional time in two classes, not three. Those were brutal classes sometimes, as you recall, especially on, on Thursday before the weekend started. So attention deficit disorder symptoms, impaired emotional and social intelligence. Well, of course, you're not interacting with your friend next door sitting right beside you. You're texting with your friend sitting right beside you. We don't know how to interpret social cues. We don't know how to really be present for people anymore because we just communicate with simple phrases and emojis. Very, very superficial. Technology addiction, real thing. I was sharing with uh, a story about a football player that I saw one time. He said, look, I'm not going to make the team this year. This is a professional football player. I said, well, don't talk like that. Why do you say that? He said, well, I didn't do in the offseason what I needed to do to be my best athletically. I'm like, wow, that's, that's heavy stuff. He said, yeah, because I'm addicted to my phone. I come home every night. I put the phone in a drawer and try to get things done that are going to further my interest in career and health and whatever. And then an hour later, I'm sitting on the couch with the phone in my hand. I don't know how it got there. That's addiction. That reminds me of being a medical student at Emory University. And during my psychiatric rotation, talking to individuals with drug addictions. Unbelievably, I'll never forget some of these conversations. And a guy telling me I would try to get clean and then I would wake up with the needle in my arm. Remember Nikki Six from Motley Crue? Remember VH1 behind the music? He says the same thing. I was out and I was really trying to be off of it. And I woke up with the needle still in my arm and a pool of blood collected in my hand. I mean, this is addict talk. And when you talk to people who are being honest about their cell phone use, and boy, we are good at not being honest about it. They'll tell you very similar stories. Social isolation, absolutely, and impaired brain development, particularly in young people who start using phones and disrupted sleep. That's the final thing that they talk about. So I don't think there's any question that our technology use is moving us away from longevity, not towards it, which is ironic because you're on technology now listening to me. So there's good and bad with it. And I think that we, you know, what we have to do is we have to find balance and we have to ask honest questions of ourselves and our loved ones about their technology use. Why is the bed, your cell phone in your bedroom? Why are you always on your phone? What periods during the day do you step aside from your phone? Very important. And finally, I'm going to leave you with a paper. This is an older paper from 2014, Frontiers of Aging and Neuroscience. And the title of the paper is, and I believe this was Brazilian, if, I, if I'm mistaken, but that could be wrong about that. Human longevity is associated with regular sleep patterns, maintenance of slow wave sleep, which is another way to say you're getting quality sleep that's not disturbed. Why do sleep apnea patients have virtually no slow wave sleep? Because they're constantly waking up to catch your breath. Why do people who drink a lot of alcohol have no slow wave sleep? Slow wave sleep impacts alcohol and chronic Alcohol use impacts slow sleep in a negative way, you know, on and on and on. And favorable lipid profile. 
So this study said, listen, forget all the noise, forget the TikTok video, forget the little device that vibrates at a certain frequency is going to make you live to be 138 years old. You concentrate on these three factors. Number one, sleep on a schedule. Get regular sleep in regular patterns. Go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, somebody likes to nap, take your nap at the same time every day. And we preach that on the show all the time. Number two, protect your deep sleep. Now, being on a schedule will help protect your deep sleep, but what do we eat? Affects our deep sleep. Exercise. How, remember the episode we did? How, how do you get more deep sleep? Let me refer back to this one. I'm going to find that episode number really quick because I think that's really important. Uh, man, our, 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 our sleep here, here we go. In a deep, deep sleep, where do you go for deeper sleep? That was episode 43. So deep sleep is important. And what this group is saying is protect it. When you're young, you get a lot of it. As we get older, the consequences of not going to bed on time, staying up drinking, disrupting our sleep is much more impactful on our deep sleep as we get older. So if you want to stay young, got to get the deep sleep and a favorable lipid profile. So talk to your doctor, get your cholesterol and lipid panel done, find people who are intelligent about ways to manage that, you know, cardiovascular calcium scans. There's all kinds of things out there. If you've got a doctor who says, look, your lipids are critical. You need to be intervening upon them. Don't ignore your doctor if you want to live a long life. So that's it. I just wanted to touch upon these things and sort of bring this topic to light on the Sleep Unplugged podcast. If you're interested in communicating with the show, you can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, Threads, Instagram, at drchriswinner. Love to hear your thoughts about the podcast or anything else that's on your mind, topics you'd like to hear about, uh, thoughts about Oasis and, and where they sort of stand. Do you think they borrowed too heavily from the Beatles or do you think their music was right on time? And if you think that about Oasis and the Beatles, how do you feel about uh, Greta Van Fleet and Led Zeppelin? Love to hear about it. Um, my book, Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep's Broken, How to Fix It, as well as Sleep Unplugged, Why You're Tired, Why Your Irritable Child May Have a Sleep Disorder and How to Help. Uh, you can find us on our YouTube page. It's the Sleep Unplugged podcast on YouTube. All of our episodes and videos are on there. So anyway, that's it for the podcast. I hope you all sleep well and live forever.